Woohoo! Welcome to the Some Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. And so excited to do a deep dive on this episode. As you can see, this is the episode where we're talking about the fact that trans athletes' rights are human rights. And just really excited to have like a loving, open conversation about this, as we do with all our podcasts, just kind of like yeah. sitting around the dinner table talking about this topic, which we are extremely passionate about. Yeah, we want to make sure everyone listening to this knows you are loved. That includes obviously trans athletes, first and foremost, given this topic, but also people that might be in, in the middle on this topic or people that are unsure or even critics. Like no matter where you're coming from, you're loved. We're all starting from different places. Our hope on this podcast is to give you the tools to like really expand your scope of empathy and understand why trans athlete inclusion is a moral imperative for all of us. And we can all support it and we need to use our voices. And I think as we go through this process, like David and I will inevitably, we're going to yeah. mess up. I think we mess up a lot, but I think this is like such an important topic to me that I'm almost like, I don't want to mess up. Yeah. I want this to be perfect, but we will mess up and that's okay. Like if we do, please send us so we can keep learning send us like some constructive criticism to some work i'll play at gmail.com you can save i think like we may get some like harsh criticism or like yeah. mean criticism on this topic you can send that i think joe rogan at gmail.com <laughs> may align with that a little bit better but just please like reach out to us like we're always learning like always trying to show up and be better so like please reach out to yeah, us yeah and i mean i think that actually draws home why we're talking about this subject is like so i wrote an article with b an athlete i'm very fortunate to coach a pseudonym um last year on this called this exact same title and there were hundreds of like very intense comments and it gets to the point that the people that are shouting against this are often so loud that it feels like it's a cacophony like that's where the majority is but in reality, it's the exact opposite. I was gonna say, this is like a lot of things in life where yeah. there is this like powerful vocal minority that like actually doesn't have so much power when you go back and yeah. like dismantle it. And we, the people listening to this podcast are so loving and so supportive. And if we all start to use our voices in a major way, we can fundamentally alter the sports world long-term. And we're gonna get to some like specific details about what we're gonna be doing in the future on this topic. But for now, just know that like, if you're listening to this, even if you're not right alongside us yet, you are loved and we are there for you. And we're going to get back to some of our journeys too yeah. about like how we started thinking about this process and like where we were even back in like 2010. But before we do that, I think it's just like for us, it is so important. Like trans people listening, like yeah. we see you, we are here for you. You are loved. Just like so much respect for everything trans people have gone through their journeys. Like and there's like total brilliance. So yeah. thank you for that. And we understand that it can be weird to have your basic humanity and identity talked about in this manner, um, especially because we're going to be trying to talk to people that might be a little unsure on this topic and haven't heard. And it, that really gets back to our personal experiences. So we want to ground it in our personal experiences to let you know that if you are unsure, it is okay. Um, so for me, I had mainly heard about this via Twitter, via New York Times articles, things like that. So I didn't really know enough to have like a hard, hardcore opinion on it. Um, and then everything changed a little over five years ago when my phone rang. Actually, and for those that haven't seen David when his phone rings, like his heart palpably goes <laughs> to 120. Like, I think that just shows the true introvert. Yeah, yeah. And usually you're like sitting there, you let it ring for a little bit and you're like, am I going to take this? Am I going to take this? <laughs> well, I answered this one on the first ring um, because this was one of my closest friends, uh, someone I had coached for a long time, uh, calling and for the very first time. And when someone calls for the first time out of the blue, you know, it's a momentous occasion. Something, uh, something big is happening. It is a earth shaking thing because this doesn't just happen out of the blue, especially for like our generation. You text first. Um, and so this was B who I would go on to write articles with and still on the team now, um, telling me that they were in the transition process. Um, so over the next five years, B taught me, you know, I was able to learn every single day from B's miraculous journey from hormones to surgeries, to performance, to all these other elements um, that went into the identity as a, as a 
trans woman. And it was the most powerful, uplifting, cool, um, and also disheartening experience. And it was disheartening because um, it really brought me home to see how performance science is being weaponized in sometimes a disingenuous way. Um, and that's what we're going to try to get to on the podcast a little bit. And what I love about you, David, as a coach, is just that you're this incredible sponge, like soaking <laughs> up the experience of athletes, soaking up science, soaking up all of these different things and putting it together. And through that sponge, I then get this like osmosis of like everything that you've learned. And I just was really grateful for you, like, you know, showing up and committing to learning about this process. And then in that, you know, in doing that, teaching me and well, teaching the world as well. I mean, I'm just really grateful. Even before that, you were going through your own journey. And every time you told me about these issues medically and your background as a doctor, it gave me more conviction. Um, and, and it laid the groundwork, I think, for this type of podcast today is because, you know, you were at Stanford Medical School learning about this and like just, I don't know, lifting me up in that journey too. Actually, it's funny. I think back to 2010 and I think this was before I'd even entered medical school. Yeah. I was in undergrad racing and this was kind of like the first time I had heard about this topic, heard about it in sports. And I think I naturally just had this little bit of like a wall yeah. that went up. Like I think my brain went to all of these different things like science and exercise physiology and all these, all these, like it was like the first place my neurons were yeah. leaping to. And it was like my default in life is always inclusion. Yeah. I'm like, let's give everyone a hug. It's time for Paddington energy. And that wasn't where my brain went first and it was strange to me oh, yeah. and I think all of that fundamentally changed when I entered medical school in 2013 so I in medical school my scholarly concentration was gender studies and got to learn a lot about this topic and it just changed how yeah. my brain conceptualizes I remember actually my first lecture of medical school or one of my first lectures of medical school was done by Ben Barris a neuroscientist mm -hmm. and it was an incredible lecture I remember walking away and being like that is one of the best lectures I mean I've at that point I had gone to a lot of classes yeah, now yeah. I've gone to even more class and I look back <laughs> And I'm like, that was, I mean, it just was like so brilliantly designed, but the next, the next best slash cutter I had, and this like even topped it was four weeks later, Ben Barris showed up in my gender studies class yeah. and lectured on being a transgender scientist and like his journey, what it was like at Harvard when he transitioned and my brain flipped. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I was like, oh my gosh, like what it takes you know, to go through this, like the struggles of gender identity, there is so much wrapped up in this. And like, it, it just was fundamental to yeah. my learning. And I mean, that's so powerful because if you're unsure listening to this, know that like, I think basically everyone is internalizing these, these societal norms. It's like, like Megan, maybe one of the reasons your wall was up is you're imagining LeBron James on a field hockey field, because that's what the people that are might be critical try to put into the public imagination, even though that is not a reality at all. Um, it can lead to all of us internalizing that to a certain extent. And it takes actually like knowing someone sometimes or, or seeing someone go through the process to be like, oh, wait, wait, empathy, engage. Um, and hopefully what we can do is give people some tools to practice that empathy, even if you don't have the good fortune that we have of like, for me, B, for you, uh, Professor Barris and others, you know? And I think what I think about Professor Barris is he actually unfortunately died of pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. He, after his death, he wrote a book, The Autobiography of Transgender Scientist. If you read it, the quotes in there will give you goosebumps yeah. about his journey, about everything that it took. But then like after that, I started coaching transgender athletes, became like you, like much more acquainted with what it took to transition, much more acquainted with the gender, much more identity, much more acquainted with all these different things. And it sh continued shifting yeah. my brain. And then this year, my lab partner in epidemiology, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant force. She just like, I mean, thank She was a, a life send for me. She she, I was going to say like, I was just thinking about all the homework assignments that yeah. she just was like fundamental for me on, but also just like such a caring and amazing human. She unfortunately committed suicide. Mm. Um, and I think like for her, the process of transitioning, the process of being a trans advocate was just a lot. And I think that, that I remember the day that I got the email about that and just kind of like process that journey. 
it, I sat here at my desk thinking about the fact, and this was like a day when trans athletes, like rights and sports were being deeply discussed. And I'm like, Megan, this issue goes so far beyond yeah. sports. This is about life. This is about identity. This is about showing up for people. And like, this is a human right, human rights issue. And I think that like solidified in my brain, like, okay, like this is a fight. Like we have to show yeah. up because this is just so far beyond sports. And it's unfair to make sports a, like a ground for talking about human rights in this way. I remember you crying that day. And I mean, I, I love the word fight that you're using. Like as much as we're about love, this is a place where we all need to step up and fight. And on that topic, um, as it relates to sports in particular, like just this morning, a trans athlete on the team um, left this comment in their log and I'll share it anonymously. Obviously I do realize that running is more than racing, but I want to share community through competition and not feel limited to solo pursuits. I love the sport so much and I want to feel loved and included by the sport in return. That is a powerful statement. What I also think about here too is the fact that like, I think I keep coming back to this over time. I'm like, why do I have to keep coming back to this yeah. over time? But like diversity in sport, diversity in life, diversity in the workforce makes us all better. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. have learned so much about life, about sport, about like, you know, empathy, about identity, about all of these different things from trans people in my life. And it's like the more, the more that we can allow like other people to have those experiences like the world is going to be a better place. And I think we also just need to keep coming back to that fundamental point. Yeah. And whenever, I don't know, your doctor experience and being in the hospital and getting to see this in practice is always so powerful for me because I think sometimes when I hear about everything B or, or other trans athletes are going through, I have a little bit of trouble understanding like the medicine, the, me the biology behind it. Um, and you, you and other doctors get to see it a lot more firsthand. Well, and I think it's actually, it's fascinating. Like doctors take a big stand on this topic and yeah. supporting trans rights, supporting trans athletes rights. And I think it's because doctors like they go through this journey with trans people and they understand what it takes to transition and how yeah. hard it is. And there's like, so much more complicated full, than hormones. The full scope of everything. This is not just about testosterone. This is about like the entire journey. Actually, the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't take a lot of stances on things, but they have they've been they've been filing uh, amicus briefs against anti-trans bills yeah. because they are so passionate about this topic. Same with the American Medical Association, widely in support of trans athletes and transgender rights. And I think it's just like to me that really draws home because doctors are right there in that process and they see this. And I think like the more people that are able to be alongside trans people as they go through these journeys, the better. Yeah. And we're going to try to give you uh, some of that, those tools um, that, that doctors might have, that lawyers might have, which gets to my background a little bit. So I was a part of an amicus brief in the Idaho case. Um, I've also counseled with some race organizations and U.S. federations on this topic. Um, and I think one of the really powerful things, and we're going to ground a little bit of this in law, is that the science does not back up any of the exclusionary policies whatsoever. And then when you combine that with the law, it's like this ultimate one-two punch that's like, oh my gosh, we have to stand up. This is like people are trying to do uh, perhaps some insidious things right right in front of our eyes. And I think so we're going to start there with the law and talking about why inclusion should be the default and then layer in some of these sports performance studies and why the data does not back this up. Um, and for me, like, you know, I spend a lot of time doing work on female athlete health, female athlete performance. Um, I, you know, see this as a, like, you know, female athlete on the starting line. Like, yeah. I welcome anyone who identifies as female, like, show up on the starting line, let's compete, let's make this a community. And I'm just really excited about that. So we'll kind of use that to ground the two different discussions. So starting first with why inclusion should be the default and then going through like why at this point like the, the studies just don't back yeah. up that this should be an issue in in running yeah and so why even talk about this topic now 
Um, and so you might have heard about this in passing, but I think the full scope of it is kind of important to understand. So as of this morning, I think it's just over 35 states have proposed trans athlete bans um, since the beginning of 2021. Wow, that is like mind boggling and awful. But well, I also think it's connected too. So there were previously these bathroom bans yeah. that were fortunately turned over as unconstitutional. But I think what these lawmakers, these anti-trans lawmakers were realizing in the process, we were like, okay, like sports are a little bit more of a nuanced training, like breeding yeah. ground for this. Like, you know, if we can't pass this in the bathrooms, because I think like people, I mean, yeah. People should be allowed to use the bathrooms, no duh. Yeah. But I think the I think for 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 people like sports just felt a little bit more nuanced, and I feel like you could see you know in the anti-trans legislature's minds like oh this could be a yeah. good breeding ground <laughs> like in that like evil sort of tone. It's and a I bubbling think, like, cauldron of discrimination, and I think that's why it's so important that people are vocal against this is because like no sports are not the appropriate like this is like you know sports have to be inclusive like yeah. this is a this could set a dangerous precedent. Well, the actual number is really powerful when you're talking about thirty-five. Plus bans. The reason that they're all coming out at the same time is that they're all drafted by the same think tank organizations, the same ones that did the other bills, uh, the same anti-trans legislatures, the same, it all has this evolutionary lineage that directly connects back to objectively, obviously discriminatory things. It's just a little tough sometimes to see that direct connection. And that's where like all of our voices really make a difference. Because with the bathroom bills, if you remember, people, they, the proponents of those bills were like, oh, well, we're going to protect our children. In the same way that now they're like, oh, let's save women's sports. They're trying to weaponize like safety and inclusion against uh, the forces of like, of like, you know, keeping everyone involved. And I think that's a, that's a problem that we all need to stand up against. I think when you talk about weaponizing safety and inclusion, I think you can think about history and yeah, like what yeah. a dangerous precedent that sets. Like, I think actually there's a lot of parallels here with gay marriage 10 years ago. Like you talk about gay marriage 10 years ago and it was a much more hotly debated topic. Like right now, I think everyone is in support of the idea. Like, yes, like gay marriage, yeah. like people should be allowed to be married to whoever. And, but it took 10 years of like, you know, fighting and struggle and lives. And it's like, we don't need to repeat this process. Yeah. with trans athletes like i'm hoping in 10 years we look back on this podcast and be like why did we <laughs> yeah. even have to talk about it in this way like why are you know why are we vocalizing this in a way that like is a struggle and you know i hope we get there but i think it's so important for history that we do yeah because otherwise we face the problem that like you know inclusion not being the default like think about where that could go and that is a problem yeah and i think history is watching and i think when we talk about history it's easy to assume of course there's gay marriage now i mean that was gonna happen but the point is no that took thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people standing up and being like, no, 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 this is a must. Um, and that's where in the sports community, especially in the running community, which is a much smaller one, every single one of our voices is so immensely powerful because every time we post on social media, every time we stand up for trans rights, we're pushing back against maybe those very loud voices that are willing to scream about it. Um, and if we can do that and get a critical mass, which we're going to talk about some active, some activities that you can all do soon, um, we can change the world for the better in the coolest historical way. And I think that's exciting because we've talked about on here, like different topics and how like sometimes it's about just like putting one yeah. foot in front of the other. Oh, yeah, yeah, but I yeah. think on the top, on this topic, what's so cool is you can make leaps as yeah. an individual in furthering trans athletes rights. And that's so exciting. Yeah. Like, holy crap, let's all do that. These are going to be some nonlinear adaptations for human rights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you want to get into the first big question. So the first big question is why is trans athlete inclusion the default? And I think this is like, this needs to ground the 
discussion. Like I think sometimes we see exercise physiology studies that are picking at like one issue of testosterone, but it's like, they're not looking at the broader, the broader concept that this is about like inclusion being the default. And I think like David, from your law background, you've taught me a lot on this topic. Yeah. And I think what we'll do is walk through the Idaho case that we've referred to a little bit, because that's instructive to talk about why inclusion is the default in a democratic society, that this goes to like our constitutional rights rather than like just narrowing it down to what happens on the sports field. And you've taught me so much about this fact that the fact that like, if like, you know, the, because inclusion is a default, you need a very, very yeah, high yeah, yeah. hurdle of evidence to like, to jump over to prove that it's not. And I think that, that topic and that concept is so important for history. Like, yeah. you know, if we reverse that with trans athletes rights, it has a very dangerous precedent for the fact of like making that hurdle to clear lower and lower and lower. So all that you have to do is take a baby jump. Like yeah. we need that to be a pole vault. We need that to be a high jump. Like you need to have so much evidence to be able to clear, to be able to clear. Yeah, and the evidence has yeah. Also, I wish everyone had a video of Megan right now. She is talking with her hands. She's I'm like steps. pole vaulting with my hands over here <laughs> yeah, on my yeah. shoulders. Yeah, we're, we're getting. It's absolutely amazing. Um, so on the Idaho ban, um, in March 30th, 2020, uh, they passed a ban on April 30th. It was challenged by Lindsay Hecox um, asking for immediate injunctive relief against the law to prevent enforcement. Okay, so when this was happening, David <laughs> kept using the term injunctive relief. Yeah. I was like, David, WTF is injunctive. This is like the, how David talks as a lawyer all the time. And my catchphrase is, WTF, does that even mean? <laughs> this so excellent. can you describe injunctive relief? Because I think this is actually like a fundamental issue and it's like a really important thing on this topic. This XLAX gives me injunctive relief. <laughs> yeah. um, no, so uh, th this is a quote from the case. Injunctive relief is an extraordinary remedy that may only be awarded upon a clear showing that the plaintiff is entitled to such relief. I love the focus on the word extraordinary yeah. there. So I think like, so essentially this means then that the judge is giving relief against the law because there's like extraordinary yeah. reason to do this because like I it's think not, it seems obvious yeah it's not just like 50 50 on the facts this requires um Hecox, Lindsay Hecox to in, in her counsel to really jump the hurdle even though later on it won't be the same way and um this case that it was struck down um at this point um by very important to say a Republican judge um struck this down as a violation of equal protection under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So very briefly on what equal protection is, because I think it's one of those terms we throw around a lot, um, even more so than injunctive relief, but it's way simpler than you might assume. It's not this really complicated legal doctrine. Um, so it basically requires that all similarly situated people be treated alike. Um, but in practice, that is obviously really hard. We need to classify in a, in a country with laws um, to a certain extent. Um, to deal with that balance, the legal system uses tiers of scrutiny. And that sounds like a, a term, but it really matters here, tiers of scrutiny. So when you're talking about gender-based classification, it is subject to heightened scrutiny. So this isn't just, oh, 50-50 on the merits. This means you step up the game and you say, uh, this classification must serve important governmental objectives. So essentially what you're trying to say, let's, we can get back to this hurdle analogy here, yeah. is, is that like to clear some sort of measure of discrimination, you have to like show a pole vault worth of evidence. Yeah, yeah, you need to, you need to back it up in the record. Um, you know, you need to bring in the science. And um, and that science needs to be by and large conclusive. Yeah, and that's what judges do. Um, you know, I think sometimes it's hard to realize that in these cases that involve a lot of science, Science, judges interpret the science. That's that's part of the role of the legal system. And that's what the judge did here in striking down the case. Um, and they found that it is not backed by available science, legal precedent, or principles of basic justice. So they they Okay, what that is like, yeah. I love the judge saying that this doesn't this doesn't apply to principles of basic justice. I feel like that's kind of like a you're just like, I don't know, like, yeah. like striking down oh, like in I mean the judge did a lecture on the three branches of government in this to the Idaho they were essentially saying to the Idaho legislature, hey guys not okay.
Um, and you know, that's powerful because this, this judge did made this decision. It won't happen in the future. Eventually we're going to get a judge that is a little bit more radical, um, that won't, but it just shows that to an outside perspective that sees all of the evidence, it does like radicalize you for inclusion. Um, and so I think okay, yeah. for me, as I was trying to understand this, I think the fundamental point here is, is that like, this is an important precedent because you can't constrain rights with limited evidence. Yeah. Like if we were take to, able to take limited evidence and apply that to cases of human rights, like think about all that would be in jeopardy. Like, you know, we have made so much progress as a country with race, with gender, with all of these different things. And if you could, if you could dismantle that with limited evidence, like it would be a disaster. And I think that's why this is such an important case. Yeah. Yeah. And that's is, why, that, is yeah. that true? Oh, I'm trying well, to understand this from like, <laughs> you're so much better at explaining it than I am. I just want to start throwing around word soup all the time. Like I'm just going to be using the word injunctive left and right. You're over here doing your, uh, your hand wraps and just rocking it. Um, you know, and there, there's a quote in there that there is a dearth of evidence in the record to show excluding transgender women from women's sports supports sex equality, provides opportunities for women, or increases access to college scholarships. Essentially, all of these arguments that you might have heard on Twitter, or like I did all those years ago, are just not backed by the evidence. Um, it's certainly not backed by the evidence in such a way that we should be constraining constitutional rights. And and even if we're in non-constitutional settings, so I think that's one relevant thing. This is in schools, you know, but even in other settings, this framework for discrimination must apply. And that's why transgender athlete inclusion is the norm. Like, even though it seems like there's a lot of people arguing against it, that's why like IOC, Western States, all of these places have, you know, robust policies in place to allow trans athletes to participate. And to say that transgender women are women. I think yeah. like you brought up the point of college, college scholarships. And it's like, well, if transgender women are women, how are we taking scholarships away from yeah. women? Also show me the data. We'll get into this later. Yeah, but this yeah. is like this argument. I'm like, this is one of the weaker arguments I've heard ever. Yeah. And so if you're talking about this with someone, if you're thinking about this, keep coming back to that term. Inclusion is the default. When we say inclusion is the default, it's not some wishy-washy term where we're just sitting on the sidelines. Inclusion is the default is the basis of society as a whole, and especially the basis of dem democracy. And I think this topic, so trans athletes' rights, are talked about in a lot of different settings. Like it's talked about in exercise yeah. physiology, it's talked, it's talked about in medicine, it's talked about in science, it's talked about legally. And I think like whenever presented, that statement that inclusion should be the default has to yeah. go along. Like that has to be in the abstract, that has to be in the inclusion. Like I think presenting these like cherry picking things like testosterone or these other topics without presenting that has an incredibly dangerous precedent. Yeah, yeah. You need to come ready to play. You know, if you come at the king, you best not miss, especially when it comes to constitutional rights. So legally, uh, inclusion is required by the Constitution. It prevents gross injustices that have happened in history. Um, and then legally and ethically, the burden of evidence cannot be placed on a discriminated against group, which is why we are at the place right now where inclusion is an absolute must, um, because the evidence does not support discriminating against this group. I love that. And I think right there alongside the legal arguments are the moral arguments yeah. as well. Like I think like sports, like I have realized like sports for me are just like part of this fully realized life. Yeah. And I think like you think about that for trans athletes too. Like actually David, David wrote an incredible piece in Toronto magazine. And you had this quote in there about the fact that like sports are fundamental to identity yeah. and to life. And like, we need to give everyone the chance to be able to participate in that. And you said, sports can be the difference between a fully realized identity and feeling alone in the world. Inclusion is about human rights because it is about identity and acceptance for people that have faced marginalization and discrimination. And I think, wow, like that, that to me is a beautiful quote, but I also think, holy cow, like this is about youth sports too. Yeah, like think exactly, about like yeah. growing up as a, as like a kid and like how important sports were for identity. And like, we need to give everyone the gift. Of well, that's why the American Association of Pediatrics came out so strongly in support of 
full inclusion in our filing briefs against all of these bills. It's like youth sports are maybe where the rubber hits the road the most um, with, with this topic. And it's just so important that we ground it in that. And all that brings me back to B and the other trans athletes we've gotten to coach in and just talk to in our in our journeys. And it just brings home that marginalization and discrimination are not abstract concepts that are just window dressing of people talking about. They are very active, felt everyday uh, concepts. And when we talk about youth people, you know, youth experiencing this, it is just purely and utterly heartbreaking. So I mean, putting that putting that burden on youth to yeah. me is like eye-opening. Yeah. Like thinking about 13, 14, 15 year olds having to deal with this at the same time as transitioning, that is so much to Especially when all that is, you know, when you look at these bills, they're grounded from places of pure discrimination. And maybe there are some people that have come from other places to reach the same outcome, but it shouldn't matter if the discriminatory people reach the same conclusion. Like that should be really informative. So legal imperative, moral imperative, ethical imperative to allow trans inclusion. But beyond that, it gets to a medical and scientific imperative to allow- And I think that inclusion. brings us to point number two, which is why does the current state of medicine and performance data support inclusion? And I think, think back to the 2004 Winter Olympics and they have allowed trans participation since, um, since the 2004 yeah. Winter Olympics, plus like at all levels of national competition. And I think there's this like critical forecast predicted by people that like trans women are going to be taking over sports. And that simply has not happened. After so many years after so much participation that's a really interesting variable because okay this gets but I, think, back I think i was going to say statistically like you would expect yeah. trans athletes like and we are going to expect that over time as we allow more trans women to participate as we should trans women are going to have success yeah. that's just statistical you allow a population of people to participate there are going to be olympic champions there are going to be national champions yeah. in there like that's just stats Heck yes yes and that's amazing and i think like the struggle that i think about for trans women for trans athletes is is like having success like yeah. I, I can think like you know how it's kind of a double-edged sword like you want to have success but you're also like is the media going to come after me oh. like am i going to be this you know burden for trans for trans athletes rights for trans athletes participation and no we should celebrate that and we've already seen because that. it's going to happen and we've already seen that like someone will win like a high school championship in Connecticut, you know, there's not to say there's tens of thousands of state championships awarded across the country every year. And for some reason, we have a problem when a trans woman wins it. We have no other problem when other talented when people thousands win it. of yeah. other athletes win it. And so there's a statistical, undeni statistically undeniable dearth of this evidence um, in the real world. And the reason that the real world matters and that we must keep grounding it in this is we talk about this on the podcast all the time. You can't isolate variables that efficiently in an exercise physiology study. Um, you know, when we're talking about performance, the real world, how we feel, all these other variables incorporate so many thousands into what actually happens. Some of these studies are performed over years in athletes. Yeah. Like there was a study done in the military that we're going to talk about coming up. But like, if you're looking at a study that's done in five years over people, think about how many we talk about yeah. here are confounding variables. So many confounding variables in those studies. Yeah, you're, you're measuring moving targets. Um, and so, all right, let's, before we get to that, let's really ground this. I, one thing we want to leave in your head as we're talking about this, why are these bills trying to solve a problem that does not exist? Undeniably does not exist in the real world. Um, when we're talking about running, um, this is and why when you're referring to the problem, you're referring to the fact that these people think that trans women are going to come in and dominate. Sport. Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem that they're, you're that they're to. creating a problem essentially that doesn't exist. And Answering the answer to that question, we're not going to give you because that's beyond, I think, necessarily our scope. But this is why history matters, because every other time that question has been relevant, people trying to solve problems that don't exist. Um, it has been something that should have been a place where all of us stand up and say, no, no. This is discrimination. Yeah. This is marginalization. This is time to fight, as you exactly. said. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so that's what we're going to talk about when we get into the studies. So uh, to start, 
Um, a 2015 study by Joanna Harper is one of the only ones that looks at runners in particular over um, a transition process. This was in the Journal of Sporting Cultures, and it was just on eight runners, and it found that after a year of hormone therapy, um, performances equalized, it was totally fair. Um, but <laughs> let's let's get the statistician in here to talk about why that's a little bit, uh, perhaps something we shouldn't draw the biggest conclusion from, even though it supports our point of view. But it was only done in eight runners. Yeah. And I think it suffers also from what we were talking about before, where these eight runners are also moving targets. They're going through the transition process. Imagine what happens in the transition process emotionally, physically, on yeah. so many different levels. And, you know, again, you're just measuring that moving I target. I think what you said there's a fascinating point. And something we're not talking about much on the podcast is what is actually involved in the transition process. The reason we're not is it gets a little bit into the weeds, but we've got both gotten to see it firsthand on very detailed levels. And this is why uh, really examining the science is so important. Well, because I think people in the science focus on testosterone, yeah. but you're like, testosterone is one of literally 5,000 yeah. variables that are impacted by the transition process and focusing, picking one apart and saying, this is like the one thing that we're focusing on is unfair. Like we have so much to learn yeah. about all the little processes that change as like biological processes that change as someone goes through the transition process and how that impacts. Sport. And we would never do that in performance science more generally. I mean, we see blood tests all the time. We see wildly variable testosterone numbers and we're not saying, oh, that person with high testosterone is somehow unfair. Actually, it's an amazing point that the spectrum right now yeah. of being a female, like even being a male or like biologically born female is vastly different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it gets why we keep coming back to the real world. It's like, if this was unfair in some way, which we're saying it's not, then you would see it in the real world. And like we show us the real world data. And yeah. you, we absolutely haven't. If anything, the real world data points the other way that trans, it might be unfair for trans athletes because where are our trans athlete champions? There are so many athletes out there and we just haven't seen it. So hopefully, hopefully this people, trans people listening, it's like, let's get some trans athlete champions going. After the 2015 study done by Joanna Harper, there was then this 2020 review published in sports medicine. And this, this review, unfortunately was cited by a lot of places in favor of trans athletes bands. And the the authors were basing this primarily on testosterone. They pulled in some other variables as well, but they were essentially looking at the performance gap. And what this performance gap they cited was 10 to 50% between biological men and biological mm -hmm. women, and looking at how testosterone was changing in trans athletes after treatment. Um, a quote from that study was, longitudinal studies examining the effects of testosterone suppression on muscle mass and strength in transgender women consistently show very modest changes, where the loss of lean body mass, muscle area, and strength typically amounts to approximately 5% after 12 months of treatment. But I think the problem about this is, again, there's this like underlying focus on testosterone, on muscle strength. mass, on strength, but there's this is much more complicated than those pure variables. Yeah, and we talk about this on the podcast all the time with performance and all these different things, that it isn't one thing. It's thousands of things. And when talent is the incorporation of all those thousands of things, not any one variable. And the, the, the question here is why aren't these strength and testosterone focused models validated in real world running performance? Um, and the answer is that performance is far more complicated than hormones. And it's far more complicated than these strength metrics that they're using in these studies. Um, you know, we think about, it's, it's maybe easier to think about when we're talking about other subjects. So we talked about this with VO2 max, for example. Someone with a really high VO2 max doesn't mean they're gonna win a world championship. What we need to see is like, what are the champions actually doing? And that's why we come back to the real world, come back to the real world on trans issues. And I talked before about like the 5,000 different variables that change when someone yeah. does go through a transition process. Imagine how hard it is to wake up in the morning. Like, have you ever woken up in the morning feeling just like a little off? Like, yeah. They feel your Achilles or you're tired or your whoop tells you you're a piece of shit like it does for <laughs> me. As a transition, as a trans person going through a transition, like you are waking up and everything is different. And that is such a yeah. big thing. And I think like we haven't talked about like 
like how hard it is to adjust to all of this. Like you're living in a new body. Yeah. You're living with new hormones. You're living with new muscle mass. And it's, it takes a lot for the body to adjust for that. I don't think we've fully seen that reflected in the science or even like, you know, and maybe this is what is getting at that real world data. The fact that we just haven't seen like so these true. predictions play out. Yeah, so true. And so uh, there was a 2020 study on transgender military personnel um, that gets a little bit into the detail of how difficult this is. So we're also trying to make sure that it's understood that we're also saying this is difficult. Um, so uh, th this study was conducted on 70 military personnel um, and it raises some questions about, okay, how do you actually measure this in a controlled lab environment? Um, so, you know, in this study, they showed that uh, on the 1.5 mile run, uh, the performance didn't quite equalize over time for, you know, trans women to cis women. Um, but the problem is, when you're doing these longitudinal studies, you're measuring a moving target. So the the fitness changes over the course of years as training changes, as other things as change. As injuries happen, you look yeah, over yeah. like our last couple of years, our fitness has varied wildly. Yeah. And it's based on like life changes. It's based on like, you know, training changes. Yeah. It's based on nutrition. It's based on stress. It's based on all of these And think about factors. joining the military, you know, where training becomes a really big part of your life. And so it's really hard to, to isolate for those variables. And in practice with coaching, have seen that before. So um, B has talked about this in some of our articles. But for B, the performance changes, you know, as training changes, as life changes, totally mirror, uh, you know, what was seen in the 2015 Joanna Harper study. There is like you fully equalized, it's fully fair um, in that situation. And so what we're measuring often is how individuals respond to these things. We're measuring individual talent as it relates in this really complex way to the uh Inter interesting place of what gender actually is and what womanhood actually is and what ma manhood actually is and all these other things. And that is beautiful, but it's also really complicated. And I think actually you brought up a great point before that like, okay, there's people out there thinking that transgender women may have advantages in sport, but by and large, we have actually seen disadvantages yeah. statistically. Like statistically, we would expect way more trans women champions. And I think it gets back to that point that I said of like, you're waking up with a fundamentally different body, like one that is just like totally shifted. Actually, there was a big quote from uh, Joanna Harper in this, uh, and she she published in BJSM in 2020. And her point was, for those who suggest trans women have advantages, we allow advantages in sport, but we what we don't allow is overwhelming advantages, she said. And then she goes up and follows, she follows that. Trans women also have disadvantages in sport. Our bodies are being powered by reduced muscle mass and reduced aerobic capacity and can lead to disadvantages in quickness, recovery, and a number of other factors. And it gets at the fact that this is so complicated. Yeah. Like, you know, bodies are going through a, a drastic shift and you have to adapt to that and acclimate to that. And that's challenging. Yeah. And so what the science is seeing, and so there's a British Journal of Sports Medicine review in 2020 published by, by Harper. Um, and it's found very similar things to the sports medicine review. So what we're seeing is, okay, from the pl place of people that might support a ban and the place of people that support inclusion, we're generally seeing kind of similar data. The question is what you do with that data. Um, so for the proponents of inclusion, they're being we're seeing that data and being like, okay, the real world data shows that it's fair and that we allow we allow performance different differentiation in sports among people. That means that inclusion is the default. We go to that. Proponents of bans, meanwhile, will say oh, well, these studies show, you know, the strength differences. So of course we're going to exclude. But the point is that right there is anti-democratic. That's why inclusion being the default becomes the most important part of the conclusion. Because if conclusion or if inclusion is the default to begin with, then you need a much higher bar than 
we're unsure. Well, I was going to say, like, you think about science over time and models are like, yeah. you think about prediction models, prediction models are, they can be wildly inaccurate. Yeah. Like you have to turn to real world to like be actually be able to see like the validity of this prediction. Well, models. About and I think if we are like banning people in sport based on prediction models, we're going to have a lot of problems yeah. going forward because our prediction models are inherently going to be faulty. Think they're based the, off yeah. of eight people. They're based off of 20 people. They're based off of small sample sizes. Then we can't go applying that to the whole population. And meanwhile, in the real world, we have hundreds of thousands of people. And it's like a, like a weather model. If your weather model is giving you predictions that are not validated with what the weather actually becomes, you probably shouldn't use that weather model to plan your outfit. And that's kind of what proponents of a ban are saying. It's like, oh, our models say this. It's like, no, but that's not happening. So perhaps the inputs to the models are wrong to begin with. And the reason that the inputs to the models are wrong is because the transition process and hormones and like gender and generally are so complicated and coaching is so complicated and you know fitness growth and stuff is so complicated the real world incorporates all those complex variables in a way that spits it out. And when you look at it spit out into the real world, it's that there is no unfair advantage. I think Joanna Harper, leading scientist as this, on this topic, as we've talked about, has an incredible quote on this. What she says is, the bottom line is we can have a meaningful competition between trans women and cis women. From my point of view, the data looks favorable towards trans women being allowed to compete in women's sports. That's a great summary of this. Yeah. And it gets back to why the title of this podcast is trans athlete rights are human rights. It's because this is a human rights issue. When the field of the science is not fully certain, though it's starting to coalesce around this idea that there is pure fairness. Um, but when we are uncertain, we must come back to human rights, to inclusion being the default. That is essential. And we need to keep that high hurdle that we've talked yeah, about yeah. to be able to leap. You know, like if we are going to exclude people, like we have to leap that, that high hurdle. And I think if you go back and look at this data, like the critics haven't even left the ground with yeah. trying to leap that hurdle. Like I don't think there's even like, any models out there that even get close to coming to leaving the ground. Yeah. So runners out there, like we need to stand up, we need to support trans inclusion. Um, and we're going to get a little bit into how to do that um, in a minute. But I think so as we were preparing for this podcast, we reread. So back in January, Lauren Thiessen from Defector wrote an article called Lost and Found in the Batting um, in the Batting Cage. And this was about her journey as a transgender athlete. And one of the quotes in there was so beautiful. And I think it really gets back to a lot of the different points that we've talking about just about how hard the transition process is, how it's so many different variables. We're combining emotional, we're combining physical, we're combining, you know, brain chemistry. There's a lot going on. Yeah, I read, when I read this article, I remember just like crying out, out of gratitude, not, not sadness, just out of gratitude for someone to, to talk about it like, like this. And this was like one of the quotes from that article. I really recommend going back and reading it. My body is nearly unrecognizable now compared to what it was then. In the years after I left organized sports, I was cruel to it in countless ways, expressing my hatred for it by giving it cigarettes or denying it food or forcing down alcohol. I'm nicer to it now. When I feel those urges, I usually just try to lie down and sleep. But the changes I've imposed on my physical self since puberty mark my every square inch. I've succumbed to wearing those oversized cat eye glasses all the time, and not just when I need to see the board. My hair falls in thick waves down to my rib cage, far beyond what my parents used to allow. Once upon a time, I grew facial hair better than most boys at my high school, but a bunch of painful and expensive laser sessions have made shaving just a vestigial habit. Further down, I have tattoos. I have curves now. I dress the way that I should have always dressed. I'm told that I walk in a noticeably different manner. My skin is smooth from the massive doses of spironolactone I take twice a day. I weigh less and my arms are weaker, and all of that makes me a happier person. 
And all of that makes me a happier person. Um, so thank you, Lauren, for for saying I'm like getting a little emotional. But yeah, no, I think you know grounding it in that lived experience is so key. That when we're talking about these data points, we're talking about real human beings with real lives. And when you see that in practice, whether it's us through coaching or you know even if whenever you read about these topics in more detail on a specific athlete, you see that it's so complicated. And when you bring all that complicated stuff together the human, the happier person, the happier, like, you know, nature of just being in existence is what matters. And I think wherever you stand on this topic right now, like if you have put a wall up, like if you are a critic, like I urge you this, like get to know those data points. Like I think one data point on this topic, like can be an outlier for you, like getting to know someone's journey, getting to know like what, what someone has gone through. Like it fundamentally changed things for me. And I know it has for other people too. And I think like the more that we can allow trans people to share their experience, like the more those data points become, like you know valid and become this like really exciting thing and i think like i just wish like more critics and more people had the chance to get to know these experiences yeah and so okay after all that um obviously this is a relatively short podcast we're not going to change the world here we want to let you know if you're not fully with us yet also okay this is not an attack on you we are not necessarily associating you with discrimination or anything like that we're trying to come from a place of true love and just like we you know love all the trans athletes we love you too and we want you to know that we're in this together and as we're in this together let's try to really emphasize that together element and think about the trans athletes that are out there that are struggling the trans youth and all of this and be like okay Athletics is about more than just these these studies even. Athletics is about community. It's about society. It's about who we want to be as humans. It's about learning from people yeah. on diverse teams, on diverse starting lines. Like, I think if you are a female athlete out there, get to the starting line and welcome. Like, like what you can do to shift this conversation yeah. forward is being vocal and welcoming whoever comes to that starting line as a female athlete. And I think that gets to the first call to action which is vocal, it's our voices. Um, the amount that the, the critics might be vocal really provides an outsized influence on the overall conversation, when in reality, it's not as, uh, those, those voices are an extreme minority. And you know, we all, if we can get up there in our running communities and start saying trans athlete inclusion, like love, bring love to the forefront in these things um, with race organizations, with everything, there can be a huge seismic shift towards love and openness and human rights on this topic. And I think it's, that is so important too, because as we talked about like sports, I think sports right now are viewed kind of as this nuanced ground. And it's so important that sports are not viewed this way, that we don't allow that to happen. Like sports have to be viewed as this place of inclusion. Otherwise, like we talked about history on here, like, you know, history is watching. Yeah, And that's, I mean, it's so important. a conversation for exercise physiologists. If you don't feel like you have that background, this is a conversation that involves physiology and law and morals and ethics and all these different things. And we are all experts on some of those things, maybe not in our job, but in our lives, we're all experts on like a moral grounding for our decisions and stuff. So make sure that the the conversation gets broadened out to those, those 17 year olds that are struggling with their identity to be to uh you know the the megan's classmate to everyone that gets experiences these things on a, on a first-hand basis and i think also too thinking about steps like as race directors like thinking about western states has an amazing yes, transgender so policy good. and it's like i think it's so important that like we start creating these fair policies and yeah. you know opening up and race directors have a pivotal role in this yeah and right now the policies are pretty good but people are pushing back against this very hard all around the world i mean we saw rugby enacted an exclusionary policy recently. And the worry is that that might happen on a broader scale, which is why all of our voices are needed. Because 
at the end of the day, checkbooks drive decisions. And if we can all be like, no, that is not okay. We are withholding anything we have and we are going to stand up. We are going to boycott. We are going to do anything if there's ever an exclusionary policy. Um, so being constantly vigilant, we'll keep talking about this issue um, and being willing to put yourself out there. You know, the thing about this topic is it draws a lot of passion sometimes. So you have to be willing to get a little bit of that hate mail that's going to be going to Joe Rogan. But I feel like why have a platform? Like if you have a platform and you never use it for social good, yeah. like why even have a platform in the first place? Isn't that kind of just like a self-serving platform? I thought about that a lot. Because oh, yeah. like we're going to get some hate mail from this. Maybe oh, hopefully yeah. it goes to Joe Rogan. But like, <laughs> you know, I think like that, that to me, I think is just something that has like made me even more willing to talk about this, like publicly and to stand up and to like put my foot down. On this yeah. Topic. And you know, social media activism here makes a massive difference because this all gets back to the tenor of the conversation. Um, because a lot of people are being relatively silent on this. Um, you can stand up and say inclusive policies matter. Inclusion should be the default. Anything simple like that. It adds it a long way. Oh my God. I hear from athletes on the team that will see someone that stands up. So a good example is Amelia Boone has stood up in support of these. Stephanie Garcia has, and the athletes on the team will be like, I feel so seen and loved, and I feel more confident in myself today. And on the reverse side, when there's something that is the opposite direction from a prominent voice, it can tear down someone's worldview. And you know that really matters. So as we all stand up and change the tenor of this conversation to an uplifting, inclusive one, to one grounded in love, we can do anything with that. Um, and that brings us to the final thing. Um, so in the next few weeks, um, an organization that, that we're working with, we're going to be introducing a sign-on letter um, in support of inclusion. We can't give you the details for that yet. Just know that be on the lookout. We're going to give um, some opportunities to really stand up, speak out, and make love heard. You know, love will win. That's so beautiful. I love that yeah, so yeah. much. Love will win on this topic. Love will win on every topic, but it won't win without action and it won't win without fighting. That's that's amazing. I love that so much, David. And I think we're going to end this podcast too with the same way that we started it. To trans people listening, we see you, we are here for you, and you are loved. We love you all. Thank you so much for everything. We appreciate Seriously, you. Seriously, thank you so much. Woohoo! Woohoo!